This is my book. Wrestling with Adulthood, Unitarian Universalist Men Talk About Growing Up. I've had other things published before then and since then. This was published, I think, 2007, that have had a wider audience. But so far, this is my only book. Mine. Actually, I, I share it with 11 others, but I conceived it. I edited it. I'm a contributing author. I helped build it. And so when this book came out and I started to read critiques of it you know you want your book reviewed the gut level existential sense of terror and dread i felt was something that was completely unimaginable here was my work being reviewed and that's exactly what an author wants but it really surprised me now a lot of reviews were really good and i'm thinking of one review here this morning that was sort of a fair review. I think some of his criticisms, the author's criticisms from a colleague of mine that I don't know well yet, but whose work I respect, I thought they were fair. And he talked about one part of the book that really disappointed him. See, the author and the minister is a gay man, and the last two essays in the book are written by colleagues of mine who I respect gratefully, who are both gay men, Scott Prinster and Manish Mishra. I very intentionally put the book together so as to have a whole range of life experiences, different colors, different ages, people who are just aging out of young adulthood, men who are just coming into it, gay and straight, different theological orientations. I really thought I tried to create a whole diverse range of perspectives. And what this reviewer said, in a turn of phrase that I respect as a writer, he said... He was terribly disappointed to see that these two gay voices were put on the back of the book. Now, like I said, as a writer, I can respect that. That's a good phraseology, the back of the book, like the back of the bus. But I got to tell you, ow, wow, ouch, that, that got me defensive because actually the reason that my editor and I put those two essays last was because we felt they were amongst the strongest and in an assembled collection you want your strongest voices to be right at the top or right at the back so at first I had this defensive sense that he was criticizing me personally I got kind of angry and I found myself getting sort of brittle and who is he to tell me and I'm going to explain to him I'm going to give him my intentions I'm not marginalizing anyone and this whole stuff started to go forward and spin, not quite out of control, but spin too quickly in my mind. And then I took a step back before I corresponded with him. And I thought, you know, his life experience is not my life experience. My very self has never been called sick or sinful by churches too numerous to name. My life or the symbolism of my life has never been made a divisive wedge issue by manipulative politicians or called barbaric or a form of slavery by some particularly hateful politicians. I have never been shunned because of who I love by my family of origin. And most importantly, I get the liberty of living not as a second-class citizen, as every GLBT person has to live unjustly in this nation right now. So when I started to understand a little bit of his story and remember who he was, and understand he had different perspective and experience. I started to let some of that defensiveness go and took a step back. 
and said, I've got to enter some dialogue and conversation with this colleague of mine who I respect. Not to be in control of that conversation, but to listen and to learn. And then on the basis of that listening and learning to return to my life, my writing, my ministry, my very personhood with a greater sense of love and service and compassion. That experience is very much in my mind and in my heart as I was watching the movie for this week, The Help movie based on the best-selling book by Catherine Stockett. This book, this novel, not a piece of journalism, this novel that is based in early 1960s Jim Crow, highly segregated, highly brutal Mississippi South. This story of a young white woman with great ambition who wants to be a writer, who decides that what she will do to get herself noticed is she will ask the many, many maids, the help, all African-American who are responsible for almost every detail of the homes, all the details that happen in the homes of the white people in Jackson, Mississippi, even to the point that many of these maids know the children, the white children of these households more so than the white parents do themselves. It is, in many ways, a powerful story. And I absolutely loved some parts of this movie. I loved some parts of it. Some parts of it are in the best sense heartbreaking and conscience troubling. There is one scene where the character named Abilene, who's really the main character, the heart of the entire story, the maid played by Viola Davis, who I think is going to justifiably sweep all Academy Awards and all Golden Globes coming up this year. There's a scene on a bus. On the night when Medgar Evers was shot, perhaps some of you even remember this in your own life, that great peaceful activist for human rights and civil rights for his people and all people in Mississippi, and he was assassinated as he was getting out of his car one night in Mississippi. Abilene is riding on the back of the bus where she had to ride. And the person, the white man who is driving the bus, pulls the bus over, and without any explanation or even regard for their safety, he says, all black people off of the bus, except he does not use the term black people. And in this one scene, you see Abilene, a dignified woman who bears a life that is designed to grind her down and deny her humanity. This dignified woman, middle-aged woman, running by herself through the streets of Jackson, just trying to get home safely. And in that minute, you can see all of the brutality, all of the fear, all of the vulnerability of what it must have been like for a black person to be alive in the Jim Crow South. That is an amazing scene and will stick with me for a very long time. But I have really big concerns about this movie as well. It's something I first became aware of a whole number of years ago. I think it was 17 or 18, and I saw the movie Cry Freedom. Do you remember that? Denzel Washington playing Stephen Biko, the great, and murdered by the police forces, Southern right, South African human rights activist. I thought I was going to see a movie that was about Stephen Biko. It wasn't. It was a movie about a white journalist who has his own consciousness raised by Stephen Biko and by the murder of Stephen Biko. I got to tell you, I love stories about people like me who awaken, 
and recognize that there is a life bigger than just our own privilege. But what I do not like and cannot approve of is when those stories turn out to overshadow the very people who are hidden in the first place. When people like me become the heroes of the story. The best criticism I've read of the movie The Help and the novel is by a novelist named Martha Southgate who wrote this past week at EW.com. That's the online arm of Entertainment Weekly. And she said, The Help underscores the failure of pop culture to acknowledge this central truth. Within the civil rights movement, white people were the help. The architects, the visionaries, the prime movers, and most of the on-the-ground laborers of the civil rights movement were African-American. Many, many white Americans stood beside them, and some white Americans even died beside them. But, but, it was not their fight. And more important, it was not their idea. When I was watching this movie, that old sort of koan, that Zen koan, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and there is no one around to hear it, does it make a sound? This is my problem with the movie and the young woman named perfectly, I guess for her time and place, Skeeter. In Mississippi, I guess, 22-year-old woman named Skeeter in the early 60s. The way the movie goes is that somehow it seems until Skeeter shows up, these women, the help, the maids, have no voice at all and don't know how to give voice to their voicelessness. And Skeeter empowers them. That's not historically accurate. Not at all. White people did not catalyze black folks' voices during the civil rights movement. Some white people listened, and some white people were scared, and some white people fought back with hatred. But white people were not the heroes of the civil rights movement. See, when we reimagine the past and do so incorrectly, we risk doing something else as well. We risk the long ago and far away syndrome. That the fairy tale almost is, well, it had its ups and its downs and maybe, yes, a little bit of brutality and some difficulty. But that was then, not here and not now. This long ago and far away removes our ability to truly respond, not just observe, but truly respond to what is closer to us, perhaps more a part of us. Perhaps some of you know that something egregious, awful, vicious happened a hundred years ago this past week in Coatesville. Perhaps some of you have seen the plaque which stands in Coatesville right down here just a number of miles away where a man named Zachariah Walker was accused, never convicted, he never even had the chance to go to trial, accused of shooting a white security guard at the steel mill. And he was rounded up by a mob and beaten. And while he was still laying in the hospital recovering, he was dragged from his hospital bed and lynched, burned alive. Burned alive, crawling several times, the accounts say, out of the fire, saying, please, the reports say, don't give me no crooked death because I'm not white. He was lynched and he died. Not by four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten white folks. You know how many people showed up 
to observe or to participate in this lynching? Nearly 2,000. 2,000 good white folks, so-called, who stood around, participated, maybe even celebrated the death of a human being. It's easy to say, especially when we see a movie like The Help, which does at times point out the awfulness, the inherent cruelty of the Jim Crow South, to say that racism was a Southern thing. It has vicious components here as well. But most important, I think, when we watch a movie like The Help or read the book, is to not just say, okay, that's in the past. One of the things Chris said this morning about our chalice, this symbol of our faith, this symbol of our faith is only truly powerful when we recognize that what it brings to mind and brings to heart is right here and right now. If it's merely a symbol of that which is past, it's dead. It's like Latin. (laughs) We speak a language that has no practical application. But to recognize that what this chalice represents, this chalice that was first used, by the way, as a symbol to get Jews and others who were persecuted being killed out of Nazi-controlled Europe in the 1930s, this is not just a symbol of past. We have to understand that it represents something that is here, that is present. So like Chris said this morning, it is not a matter of past tense. What really matters is present tense how we are using and sharing our lives. And so I would ask you this morning, if you've read the novel or if you have seen the movie and really moved by it or you thought it had something important to say, ask yourself this. Who are the help present tense? By help, I mean those people who those of us with privilege because of skin or gender or income, those of us who can choose to overlook or avoid or ignore the lives, the sufferings, the struggles of people that are marginalized in our society. This is a present tense question. As much progress as our society has made bigotry, Exclusion, marginalization, oppression, whatever you wish to call it, is not a past tense thing. And so the most important question is, what is our present tense response to the help in our times? And I think in a religious community, in a spiritual community, one of the most important questions we can ask, particularly in this spiritual community. You know, very often people say, I go to Unitarian church, Unitarian congregation, Unitarian society, wellsprings. When I tell people what kind of denomination I belong to. You know what I lead with? I lead with universalism. I lead with universalism because you know what universalism says? A great, good gospel that our world needs, that however we choose to name it or claim it, that it is love that is the most powerful and motivating force for change and for wholeness in this universe. What the ancient Israelites, as they started to move, as they had an expansion of consciousness beyond a God, who was tribal and vicious and capricious, came up with this word to explain the expansion of their consciousness. It is a beautiful word, chesed. It means loving kindness. That became a quality of their relationship with the divine. 
And it wasn't just about them or their tribe anymore. The Greeks called it agape, universal love. Very different from philia, Philadelphia, brotherly love, love between friends or eros, romantic love. Not to diminish those kinds of two loves, but agape is different. Agape is that striving, that aspiration to draw as wide as we can the circle of our hearts and the circle of our hope to recognize that part of our faith tradition is to want to spread and to share and to live in that love. There are different ways, many different ways to cultivate, to choose to cultivate this kind of expansive love in their lives, in our lives. I think that one of the first times I really thought about it in a practical way was from a philosopher named John Rawls. Some of you might know who he is. He's got this great thought experiment that he wrote about many decades ago called the veil of ignorance. Now, normally ignorance we conceive as a really negative thing. But this veil of ignorance is actually a great way to start to think about, as he says, imagine, just imagine for a second that you do not know who you will be in a society before you enter it. You have no idea of your social place or social location and then start to ask the question about justice. What would we want for anyone in that society knowing that we might be anyone in that society? Gay or straight, light skin or darker skin, an IQ of 190 or an IQ of 90? Born a king or born a beggar? The great thing with the veil of ignorance is by taking no account of the individual particular parts of life, we try to take account of all forms of life as we ask, what is justice? What is fairness? What is kindness? What is the value and the merit of the work and the hard work that we do? And also, how do we account for just plain old dumb luck in human life? Now, as brilliant as this thought experiment, the veil of ignorance, is, none of us live there and none of us can, save for a memory wipe. So how do we, knowing our stories, seek to expand just the limitedness of our own stories and cultivate an expansion of consciousness in our lives? Day in and day out, how do we learn to see and perceive and to let more in, especially from the lives of those people that we do not have to see? One way is to learn the stories. Learn the deep stories, not just the headline stories. I know that many of us in this Philadelphia region have been paying attention justifiably to what has been around on most of those main pages, web pages or actual newspapers of the last three weeks. The horrible, inexcusable stories of youth violence and people randomly attacked on the streets of Philadelphia. Now, this cannot be dismissed and it cannot be denied and it deserves to be met with a full measure of justice. But it does not mean our society is going to hell in a handbasket because let me show you another face of one of these gangs. Ringo Starr. Cute little harmless Ringo Starr. You know what he did before he got into the Beatles? He was what they called, in something of a misnomer, it sounds so our ears, a teddy boy. He was part of a gang in Liverpool in the late 50s and early 60s. Much of what teddy boys did was this. He said it was called walking with the lads. It was going around and beating the crap out of other people who they didn't like, they targeted. Youth violence is horrendous. 
but it's not new. And it also doesn't just wear one color face. So it's important to recognize perhaps our overreactions. The other thing is to start to learn as well, too, the deeper stories of perhaps some of these people that we might only see in the news in their mugshots. For me, one of the most significant ways that I have enlarged my consciousness about people whose stories I do not see regularly and do not know, and I've shared this with you before, which means give yourself the opportunity to watch it. Watch The Wire. It is perhaps the best television that I have ever seen recorded. Better even in my mind than Lost, which like is about as close to my heart as television will ever get. But in terms of its social value, in terms of its modern day prophetic voice, especially season four. Season four, which is all about children who are lost in a system that they did not create. Season four that I am still so devastated from watching, I cannot move on to the final season five yet because I want to let season four sink in. No fairy tales there, no happy ending stories, but simply the truth. Simply the truth. As we open our minds and open our hearts and allow ourselves to be troubled, allow ourselves to be troubled by the stories of people who we may not know and do not have to see, allow that trouble to go to work on us. <laughs> Sometimes an easy conscience is a cheaply bought conscience. And then we can ask ourselves, how can we integrate a wider open heart, deeper consciousness, wider circle of hope into our lives on an even more daily basis? How do we work that soil of our consciousness so it is aerated, so it is ready to receive new seed and is not just hard or fallow ground? One of the best ways to do this, I think, and I know some of you already do, is what's called the loving-kindness meditation, the metta meditation. In the Pali, the original Pali word, metta meditation. Loving-kindness, which starts with our experience of ourselves. May I be happy, may I be healthy, may I live at ease, and then extending that, extending that to the people we know and love and care about, and then extending that further all the way up to the people that we even consider to be our enemies. One of the steps in this process that I particularly love from the great Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg, the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, is the way she words it in one of those steps is, take account of someone who you have no feeling for or against. And she uses particular categories of the help. People who serve us. Our coffee, pump our gas, bag our groceries. People we tend to exchange money with and it's very easy to overlook. She says the goal of the loving kindness meditation is to turn our hearts and open our hearts in such a way that we turn from indifference to noticing. This daily way of working our conscience is a way of slowly, meaningfully opening our minds. It means that we have the strength to pay attention and not just to fall for the sensational headlines about whose story is getting told and whose story is not and who is committing violence and who are the victims. In our tradition, 
and in wellsprings. We don't and never will have voter guides that many, especially churches, hand out. We have already entered a particularly brutal political season that's going to be going on, it seems, interminably until next November. God, I wish it was over this November, but next November. We have no voter guides here. There is no political party that has any signature purchase upon the expansion of consciousness. But this is what I believe is absolutely compelling as heirs for us to this great universalist tradition, our tradition of chesed, our tradition of loving kindness, our tradition of metta, is that we must and must and must ask the question over and over again, who is being ignored, who is being marginalized, who is being abused, and how can we pay attention and open our hearts? For me, this is the central part of the gospel of Jesus. He was asked once, as he was asked by many, many of his followers and people who were interested in what he was doing, what do I got to do to get heaven? What do I do? What do I got to do? You know, very means ends, very utilitarian. Tell me what I got to do. I want to go to heaven. Now, of course, Jesus also said, uh, heaven, by the way, the kingdom of God is inside you. So it's not a matter of getting someplace else. That's not really what it is about. And he gave answers like these. Truly, as I say, as you did the least of my brothers and sisters, you did to me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was in jail, and you came to visit me. I was hungry, and you fed me. Now, these are not just acts of justice and kindness as much as they are. What Jesus is also saying is that within his time and within his place, and it's not that much different now, sadly, the naked, the imprisoned, the hungry... They were the people who didn't get much attention paid to them. They didn't have any lobby. And so the degree to which we are aware of them signifies something about our own spiritual maturity. And it is indeed a shame for those people who call us a so-called Christian nation that we have strayed so very, very far from this central Christian teaching. That is bigger than just Jesus. I don't think that in our growth towards spiritual maturity and deepening that we can ignore these questions. Not if we want to have a spirituality of real maturity. One of our core values talks about that process of spiritual transformation that leads us into naturally acts of justice, kindness, and service. An expansion of our consciousness and of our minds that calls us to go beyond the limits of our privilege of choosing not to know certain stories. We've done a lot in our first four and a half years here at Wellsprings. We've built a Habitat for Humanity house. We've donated tens of thousands of dollars to the clinic. We are expanding our giveaway to the Lord's pantry, the food bank, which is in such dire need in these tough times. I love what we have done. And you're so... I feel a call to do more. Recently, I've been having some conversations with folks who are involved as leaders in the wider community, very often in Phoenixville because we're so close to there, folks who are engaged in the process of reaching out. A couple things came up. 
red threads through the conversations. One, they're nonprofits, no big surprise here in this economy. No one has nearly as much money as they want. No surprise at all. The second is this, that these leaders know that there is a Latino community here in this community and it is growing, but they have no idea how to connect to it. That in this political culture, when there is such fear of those who are different, these leaders get the sense that this community is pulling back and pulling back and pulling back. It brought to mind one of the moments in the help that is shocking to know the first time Skeeter and Abilene have a conversation. And Abilene says it is illegal for us to meet and be discussing civil rights. We could be thrown in jail. It calls to mind that working its way through the South Carolina legislature right now is a law that would make it illegal for any person, regardless of their immigration status, to take a person who is in this country illegally to a hospital or to a church. I recognize, as all of us do, that our immigration system is broken, but it seems that the only responses we have the courage to try at this point are entirely the kinds of responses that penalize the most vulnerable amongst us. And so one of the things that I am doing, and I'm more than open to having a conversation with you over this next year, is I'm going to Arizona next June. The General Assembly of the Unitarian Universalist Association is meeting there next year for what they're calling a Justice General Assembly. Now, I must tell you, especially if you've been UU before, I am not a General Assembly fan. It is too much rah-rah. In this day and age when so much can be done electronically, we're not in the 1950s anymore. The idea that we have to have one of these every single year is a waste of time and resources and energy and money. Too often at General Assembly, I find myself looking around and saying, where is the damn spirit here? We're supposed to be a religious community. And I find that sometimes that sort of tacked on. But we were invited by some partners in the Latino and the Latin community to come to Arizona next year and to be in a justice general assembly, to put our focus and our feet out on the streets and to learn and to open ourselves up, especially at this time. And if you know American history, you know this has been done before. In times of stress, economic deprivation, we, I'm not saying we here, or I hope we're not, we look for scapegoats. We look for the poor. We look for the recent immigrants. We look for people of different religions and we say it's their fault. I think our universalism calls us to say no. Let us come and reason together and work out this difficult issue in such a way that we are not just scapegoating. This is where my faith invites me to go and I invite some of you along if you're interested. It also calls to mind and calls to heart what was for me the most single effective scene involving a white person in the help. It's a flashback and it's a remembrance of something that Skeeter's mom did, an act of unbelievable racist cruelty and such an abuse of power that at the same time she does it, she also tragically knows she is selling out her conscience and she knows what she is doing is wrong but she's afraid and in that one moment we get the sense that this is about much more than just individual prejudice 
people of all stripes, political people of all sexual orientations, people of all different colors have prejudices. I have them, you have them. But that's what not what the help is about, and that's not what asking the present tense question of the help here and now is about. We see in that moment a legal system, a culture, and a society that are all conspiring to perpetuate a system of cruelty and division. It is not just about individual actions. It is about that which is bigger than ourselves. And so after I saw that scene, I had to ask that question of myself. How am I like that? How are we like that? You know those moments perhaps if we're straight and someone makes a gay joke and we don't laugh but we don't quite speak up. Or around a company of men and the women bashing starts and I'm not going to speak up there or say this is wrong. Or we see an act of racism against a person with darker skin than ourselves and we just sort of turn the other way. Maybe we are concerned with our own fear of status or place. Maybe we are stressed out over our jobs. Maybe we are worried about our own roles. Maybe we're worried about our own security. Those are all justifiable fears. I feel them. Maybe we're a minister of, a, just to take an example, a growing congregation in a suburban community that's growing like, like a weed and the story's a good one and it's a happy story. And, and, and maybe, maybe you know you're a minister who just is, is afraid of offending people. Who's worried about pushing people too far and too fast because you're afraid yourself. If you talk too much about justice, it's going to make people feel uncomfortable. Mea culpa. To be stressed out by our sense of fear of losing our place is not to be indifferent, it is actually to be something I think far worse, and I say this as a judgment on my own life, it is to be scared into inaction. And the world does not need from our universalist tradition any more inaction. It needs more love. And so I call upon all of us to take the daily steps of courage, sometimes very, very small, to follow that guidance from the civil rights movement that there is no easy walk to freedom, but that the walk done day after day after day becomes a walk of freedom and becomes a walk of spirit and seasons us and participates in the saving of our world. That we all walk in such a way that when people look upon us, they can say, there goes the universalist. They're spreading love. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, larger than anything, the name to which we give is love. May we be called on and called deeper by that sense and that promise of that healing love from which we came and to which we return. And may our lives give testimony each day that we live, that we are willing to be formed and willing to expand the boundaries of our life. May we find in that expansion breadth and peace and the ability to breathe without fear and that deep and ancient promise of wholeness 
and healing. Not just for ourselves as individuals, but for all of us. Amen.